I thought I would keep up with the theme of your jokes. For Did you? You want to do a joke at the start? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. um, we, haven't, we haven't even introduced the topic. People probably oh, yes. tell, so people will probably uh, get the idea from the, when they click on it to listen to it. So let's do the joke first. Okay. Um, so, when does a joke become a dad joke? Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, this week, or uh, well this month, this is probably more accurate to how often I record these, I have a new guest, uh, Shilpa Desai, who's, uh, did I get your surname right? Uh, close enough, <laughs> I, Desai. I, I just suddenly realised, I don't think I've ever said that, I just call you Shilpa. Um, she is a colleague, um, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Yep. Uh, so my name is Shilpa Desai. I am a consultant anaesthetist here at King Eddie's as well as at Royal Perth Hospital. Uh, born in Kenya, Africa. Um, trained in um, Perth over here. Uh, when did, what age were you when you shifted over here? Uh, so 16, moved to Australia, then yep. America, um, and then around for a while. Yep. yep. All right. So you've seen the world a bit? A little bit. Yep. yep. Uh, and you went, but you went to UWA, is that right? Uh, Notre Dame. Oh, Notre Dame, okay. Postgraduate. Um, <clears throat> after pharmacy training and a few yep. years of working. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, so, and you've done quite a bit of ICU in your training. And uh, I what think else about you three years of ICU, yep. um, about that, uh, in a few of the different hospitals here. And what's your your main hobbies that I can tell is you like drinking gin and, and Definitely scuba, drinking scuba gin. diving. Scuba diving. And <laughs> not at the same time. Not at the same time. <laughs> Um, all right. Um, so, just for those people who listen to this, sometimes it's hard, especially if you listen to it in the sometime in the future, it's hard to know what's happening. But at the moment, we're s- still uh, what are we in uh, October, twenty twenty one? So it's spring. Um, we don't or have winter, st- depending. Or win- yeah, it seems a bit winterish. We don't have any COVID cases yet. We still haven't opened our. Um, Comrade McGowan, <laughs> the authoritarian dictator of Western Australia, still hasn't opened the border. Um, but life is pretty good as long as you don't want to go anywhere. Um, we just had a holiday on Rotnest, which was You went overseas, good. didn't you? Yeah, overseas holiday on Rotnest. <laughs> no passport required. Yeah, well, it was good. I saw over 15 snakes when I was in Rotnest. Uh, and I almost stood on one, but the rest of them I just spotted from a what distance. Kind of sca- what kind of snakes? I think there are only brown snakes on Rotnest, but I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that, everyone. Okay. Uh, but those are the, I've only ever seen brown snakes. Uh, not that the colour of the skin of a snake is, <laughs> is, a, is a very good way of sorry. diagnosing its species. Um, but I think I read somewhere that they, they are brown snakes. Yep. Um, and the only other news I've got is that my, the homepage for the, for the website is down, and I, it's been a week and I still haven't fixed it because I'm terrible at that sort of stuff. <laughs> Better than me, Roger. <laughs> I've tried to watch a YouTube video last night on how to fix... Um, web pages, but my kids intervened and distracted me by having a fight or something. I can't remember what happened. Uh, I thought I would keep up with the theme of your jokes. For Did you? You want to do a joke at the start? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. uh, we, haven't, we haven't even introduced the topic. People will probably, oh, yes, tell, so people will probably uh, get the idea from the, when they click on it to listen to it. So let's do the joke first. Okay. Um, so when does a joke <laughs> become a dad joke, Roger? <laughs> I have no idea, Shepa. Uh When the punchline is apparent. Oh, Jesus, that is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something Graham would say, so good oh, work. Yep, nice work. Yep. Yep. Um, so, uh, 
let's introduce the topic. I've got I've written down a made up hypothetical case, uh, but as as Shilpa and I will discuss, you know, we have actually had some people uh, or some uh, women with this condition recently. So the hypothetical case: uh, imagine you you're in theatre and a 32 year old woman who's 36 weeks pregnant is brought urgently to theatre. You know, you know, they rush her to theatre. I've written down for a Category 1 caesarean, but in some hospitals that would be a code blue caesarean because of a poor fetal CTG, let's say a prolonged fetal bradycardia. <coughs> and um, when she arrives, they tell you that she's been on the ward for about six weeks because she actually has Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, and, but she's they've rushed her into theatre because of this fetal bradycardia. And the, it's after hours, no one is that familiar with her, even the, the day team obviously would know her really well, but it's, let's just say it's like 9pm on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And the after-hours team like vaguely knew that she was in the hospital, but they don't know her that well, and they haven't really thought about um, her and her and her um, condition. And the, but the obstetric registrar is very um, concerned about the baby, and says, "Knock her out, Shilpa, hurry up." Great. <laughs> sounds like a good scenario. What a uh, sounds like a very <laughs> realistic scenario. Yeah, this sort of thing definitely could happen. Yeah. Yep. Because um, this. It's not infrequent. It's just sidetracking a little bit. Like um, that, were, I've been called in by uh, registrars, or I've been involved when I was a registrar uh, at this hospital, where people with some really weird and wonderful conditions come to theatre really rapidly, <laughs> and no one in that theatre has any idea. Even though they've been in the hospital for weeks, no one in the theatre knows anything about them or their condition. Yeah. It is in the notes, but hmm. but you don't have time to. Read yeah, I know. And like everyone's like, oh yeah, I would have liked to have had a time to read through and figure out what's going on with their weird. Um, cardiac condition um, yeah. and you just have to sort of really s- rapidly figure out what to do yeah um, alright Guillain-Barre syndrome so we'll come back to that okay. fascinating <laughs> hypothetical scenario Guillain-Barre syndrome do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, shuka has been doing some research the, the history and the pathophysiology so Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, d- defined as, as an acute demyelinating polyneuropathy. Um, I've seen a, or, or a sort of treated a few patients with Guillain-Barre mm. in the intensive care unit. And the things that you want to assess from their history is um, whether there was a prodromal sort of illness, so whether it's gastrointestinal or uh, respiratory illnesses, so yep. things like Campylobacter or... Um, megalovirus, I think as well, Epstein-Barr yep. virus. Um, so those things can um, sort of cause this Guillain-Barre syndrome. So presumably they trigger some um, autoantibody o- production. Auto- yeah, they, they think it is autoimmune. So yeah, yeah, and so that antibody attacks the, your own nervous system. Yep. And that's where you get all these um, uh, faulty nerves. Yep. yep. Um, and then classically described as your motor, sensory, as well as autonomic dysfunction as well. Yep. Um, anything else that you want to add there? Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we should, I mean, how does it sort of uh, present? I, I, I've got um, a few patients in my memory from uh, when I worked in ED many years ago, but um, they talk about it like this ascending, ascending paralysis, par- don't they? Paralysis. So it sort of starts distally, doesn't it? Yeah, it starts and, distally. And then slowly um, works its way up until yeah. you stop breathing. <laughs> yeah, and really important to think of um, its respiratory <clears throat> involvement as well, so... It definitely affects um, both your v- uh, respiratory function as well as bulbar function as well. Yeah, um, which is very obviously very important. Uh, when I worked in ED, I was actually um, here in Western Australia out at Armadale. I remember the triage nurse came in one day and said to me, um, "This mum's brought in her teenage son, and he's being a, he, he's being a real dickhead." 
he's refusing to walk. <laughs> and but he's laughing and joking about it, and his mum's really annoyed because because he won't get up and walk. Uh, can you see him and get rid of him? You know, just tell him to piss off because we're really busy today, Rog. Yeah. <laughs> and so she brought him in, and I was like, and I sort of trusted this triage nurse because she's quite experienced and been around a long time. And so I thought, oh, I'll go and quickly see this guy and get rid of him. Yeah. And I went over and started chatting to him. Sure enough, he was laughing and smiling. Going, yeah, can't move my legs. Oh, it's funny, isn't it? And I, it was really sort of, you know, like, yeah. Like if, you, if you truly couldn't move your legs, you wouldn't be laughing about it, would you? Yeah. It's a bit, um, <clears throat> it's a bit weird. Um, so I thought, oh, he's just like, he's just trying to really annoy his mum or something. He's, there's some sort of reason. As a 10-year-old boy would? As, no, he was about 14. Oh, so 14. Was a teenager. Yeah. I was thinking... As someone with a fourteen-year-old, that that boy, that does ring true. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, you know, this this seems this seems like the most likely scenario. The triage nurse is probably right. And then I got out my, um, I thought I'd better examine him uh, just before I kick him out. <laughs> and I could not get his legs to move, even though I was swinging the old um, tin and hammer. And and the, his legs were dangling, and you know, yeah. uh, and they were completely flaccid, and they, they just wouldn't move no matter how hard I hit them. And I was like all the reflexes in his lower limbs and I thought that is you can't fake that and then suddenly I thought <laughs> suddenly I thought put a handbrake on the whole plan and thought we better take this seriously so he, he definitely he did have Guillain-Barre syndrome I don't know why he was not upset by it yeah because <laughs> apparently he was crawling around the house oh, with thing. it using his arms and legs and dragging his <laughs> uh, using his arms and dragging his legs behind him so it is <laughs> anyway I don't think he ever um, I did follow him up sort of from a distance I don't think he ever had any respiratory problems yeah it sort yeah. of resolved it's stayed to the lower limbs um, so the classic yeah so the classic findings are areflexia but flaccid paralysis that's correct uh, wh- what sort of autonomic things can they get um, so they can get obviously your d- <coughs> dysfunction with blood pressures um, very common to get arrhythmias as well yep um, so to, to obviously be aware of your arrhythmias so ventricular arrhythmias so tachycardias VF um not entirely sure if they get any bradyarrhythmias. But they can get prolonged QT syndrome too, I saw, which okay. um, sort of fits with, with the podcast we did a while back. Okay. Uh, presumably these are the more severe ones who mm-hmm. ended up in ICU. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Ileus, is that right? That's and, correct, yeah. Yep. Um, and if we're talking about more sort of long-term things as well, um, things to think about is uh, your sort of pressure sores, um, the prolonged immobility, so... Yep. VTE prophylaxis is very important. Yeah. So both pharmacological and non-pharmacological, um, <coughs> so compression devices, um, yep. etc. That makes sense. Yep. They, they're, not, they're not moving, so I imagine they'd be at high risk. Yeah. And then other things to think about as well is they get really, um, the, the muscles the sort of atrophy as well. Um, they might need prolonged nutrition, yep. um, so TPN or a nasogastric tube. Yeah. Um, Etc. Especially if, because if they if they end up in ICU and have um, bulbar and respiratory dysfunction, well, bulbar, you know, they can't swallow properly, mm. then yeah, they're going to get malnutrition, aren't they? Yeah. And some of them end up even getting tracheostomies and things, don't they? That's correct, yeah. Because um, it it's usually a prolonged yeah. um, if patients I've looked bad. after yeah. um, in ICU have usually been months of yeah. um, uh, tracheostomy yeah. uh, or, you know, me- mechanical <coughs> ventilation. And they can get bad ne- neuropathic pain too. So, um, Another anecdote. So when I did ICU uh, in Christchurch, the one of the ICU registrars I was working with, she was an ED registrar, but she was doing her ICU term. Her husband had just come out of the, the ICU that she was working in because he'd had Guillain Barre oh and he'd God. been there for like two months. And he came and gave us a talk. Like yep. he he was actually an engineer or something, not a medical doctor, but he came like one 
to give the um, uh, his the department yep. a talk. It was yep. really very interesting, you know, like a, his his view of things. And he said like he couldn't move, but everything in his body ached, and he said it was like terrible sort of pain the whole time. And, this, and I think I was reading, um, you know, neuropathic pain is a big problem with him. Yeah. So they might need. Um, and, and obviously, it's hard to communicate that uh, yeah. when they have on a ventilator or have you know, paralysis. Yeah. So you imagine that would be a terrible uh, condition as well. Yeah. So presumably, you treat that with uh, neuropathic drugs like pregabalin and ketamine and lignocaine infusions and things like that. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about the treatments? Oh yeah. Yeah, because you were involved in the treatment uh, of some yeah. patients when so, they worked in ICU. Yeah, definitely. Yep. So treatments can include, um, and again, I'm not a new, uh, neurologist, so yep. I don't have all that detail, but um, usually either IVIG, so your immunoglobulins, yep. or otherwise plasmapheresis. Yep. Um, I think the decision is obviously based on the severity of the, the disease um, and the progression of the disease. Um, and I'm sure the neurologists have more... Um, more... Uh, yeah, be able to explain that. I don't yeah. know. If we're not going to go into that much detail, no. but what just maybe some listeners might not know what IVIG and plasma exchanges. Yep. So IVIG is immunoglobulins, which is administered. I think it's a, a routine. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, like a regime of over four days or something. Yep. Um, whereas plasmapheresis <coughs> is, think of yourself going to donate. Um, uh, some FFP, some fresh frozen plasma, um, and. Or not fresh frozen plasma, but you're donating your plasma, um, and the plasma exchange that they do um, in your sort of blood donation centres, similar to that, um, you'd have a machine, have a vascath inserted, and then the plasma exchange can be done either with albumin or FFP. Um, so they take this. You have to put a really big vascath, you know, massive line in someone. Yeah. Usually in their groin or their neck or something. Uh, neck, yeah, usually. Yeah. Yeah. And so they take your blood off and they sort of separate it into red cells and and plasma and they give you the red cells back that's correct they, they take away your plasma because presumably that plasma contains that uh, the uh, uh, antibody that's antibodies. causing the disease yeah and then they give you some albumin or some um, plasma. plasma from someone else yeah and ivig how does that work so i think um we're going to get probably some i don't think any neurologists are listening to this podcast <laughs> uh, so ivig is like just lots of anti uh, immunoglobulins or antibodies from yeah. from a pool of um donors and that just sort of dilutes out and binds or just somehow stops complement activation yeah just slows nice? down if, if you've got some autoimmune disease it seems to like um turn it off or help yep. turn it off supposedly i'm not 100 percent sure how giving someone big doses of someone else's immunoglobin does that but presumably that's some that's direction there maybe it just dilutes it or yep. drowns it tried and tested yeah um but steroids don't work either do they because yep. because no. that's commonly used in autoimmune things and mm. Uh, all right, that's pretty good. Any anecdotes of vascaths going wrong? No, we would not stray off. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Putting in vascaths is dangerous, isn't it? Or can be. Can well, be. Can be safe. Can, can be very safe every, if you've done a few of them. Yeah, but but um, every now and then things go wrong. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, we should go back to the um, patient who's come to theatre because I might – so we're not going to be, you and I aren't going to be looking after the ICU, but we are going to have to give them an anaesthetic if yep. something sudden happens. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about that? What sure. sort of anaesthetic could you give? She's got a prolonged fetal bradycardia, the obstetric registrar is telling you to knock her out. Yeah. Her. <laughs> so obviously that's a, a bit trickier because um, with that sort of category one code blue cesarean <coughs> section and the pressure and the time, you know, 
um, yep. the stress associated with everything. And if the obstetricians <coughs> want to deliver baby imminently, I guess you don't have time to do a spinal anaesthetic um, and you'd have to embark on a general anaesthetic. So um, thiosax tube? Um, I don't use thio, but... <laughs> <laughs> and I don't use sucks in a gillian Barre patient. After no. my <laughs> so that's the trick, isn't it? Yeah. So it's probably the only useful thing from this whole podcast that... Um, you should you should take away is don't use sucks. Don't use sucks. <laughs> Which most people probably know anyway, don't they? But well, we, sometimes so. we forget. We forget, especially code mm. blue cesarean sections, not knowing anything about a patient with Gillian Barre. Yep, and so I'm sure you'd forget. You can forget even in ICU. Yeah. I got a colleague who spent many years working in ICU, and they had a um, a patient who had fractured their cervical spine, and after about <laughs> after about a week, they're struggling to breathe, and they needed to intubate them, and they forgot. <laughs> yeah. and they gave some sucks, and they got this massive hyperkalemic arrest, yeah. which they recovered from. But, but you know, it happens. Because you, know, you just used to because yeah, that was the default muscle relaxant for yeah. intubating someone in a hurry, isn't yeah. it? And you might have a junior anaesthetic registrar with no, you know, who's barely passed, um, you know, the primary <coughs> exams, let alone know anything about any of the pathophysiological conditions. Yep. Um, we probably should explain this because not everyone who listens is an anaesthetist. So yeah. Um, so saxomethionium is the muscle relaxant we use, which is traditionally the one used when you want to intubate someone in a real hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, emergency caesarean sections, for example, where you haven't got time to do a spinal and you just want to intubate them and get on with it and you're worried about a full stomach and aspiration. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, we give them a you know, drug to go to sleep, which was, was always thiopentone, but now there's probably propofol. And the fastest acting muscle relaxant we had, which was saxomethionium, mm-hmm. which binds to the neuromuscular junction and paralyzes you um, but when you have a neurological um, condition. condition like um, gland barre or um, uh, you know, spinal cord injury or something like that so the muscles don't have any innovation they they sprout all these extra receptors and so if you give someone saxomethonium they get this really really exaggerated response Profound to it response, yeah. and their muscle can release all this potassium and they and they can have like a cardiac arrest mm-hmm. Which is exactly what happened in the anecdote I just told you, and we found a case report. We should read it. Just read the uh, read the case report. So this was a case report from where was it? It's somewhere uh, in North America, wasn't it? Anesthesiology, Florida, Florida. Gaines, Gainesville, Florida. If anyone out there in Gainesville, Florida, a big wave out to you guys. You, <laughs> you gave someone <laughs> many years ago. One of you guys gave many someone sucks in 1990. It was an anesthesiology. Yeah. Someone gave some sucks in a patient with <laughs> Barry syndrome, and the situation we we're describing and. Ex- uh, they ended up with a potassium of nine, I think, wasn't? Yeah. And they had, um, you know, an asystolic arrest, but they got they got um, they got a return. I they got a return of eventually the patients. Um, yep. Yeah, they figured out what was going on and fixed yep. them up. I don't think they realised. I think they were in a very in similar situation to what we were in. Was this this case realize. was a bit more because dis- uh, there there was also a few other factors going on with this particular case uh, with drug use, etc. Yeah. So initially, the diagnosis was not thought to be hyperkalemia. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, but um, yeah. And also, they, they they thought that this patient had recovered from her Guillain-Barré syndrome. Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, so it she was, was no longer paralyzed. Uh, didn't have paralysis or weakness. No. But it was still only three or four weeks, I think. That's I can't correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a month later, uh, yeah. a month after. So obviously, you know. No one knows the timing. Yeah, so how long before you go back to normal? Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. And you're right, she had no motor weakness and no no deficits. Um, We'll leave a link to the article or the case report on the the page to this um, episode if anyone wants to have a quick read. That's quite interesting. Yeah. 
and you can see how easily any one of us could get caught up in uh, some some sort of situation like that. Uh, what about neurexials? They say that there wasn't time pressure. Yep. See, they've got an abnormal nervous system, haven't they? And, we, and so traditionally we were going to, you know, most people having caesareans, emergency or elective, we inject some drugs into their into their spinal region to numb them. What's going? What, uh, what's the evidence about someone who's got this going on? Yeah, look, How I've, does it affect that? I've been looking up a few case studies uh, of, of regional anaesthesia, so... Uh, firstly, let's think about the sensitivity to local anaesthetics. No one knows whether they're yep. um, whether the local anaesthetics going to work. Are they uh, more sensitive or less sensitive to local anaesthetics? Um, I would say they're more sensitive, maybe. Um, and then other things to think about also is spinal versus an epidural. So, yep. um, like you said, um, there is pros and cons of doing both or either. Um, with a with a spinal anaesthetic, you might get a a rapid sort of block or numbness, yep. um, and whether that's going to affect their respiratory system. Yeah, so know. they might be more sensitive to the local anaesthetic than normal, and they might get a high block or that's have correct. trouble breathing. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, and then with an epidural, again, um, you know, people worry about should you be doing an epidural, leave a catheter in, but maybe doing an epidural with a slower top-up yep. um, and monitoring their hemodynamics, especially their blood pressure and, yeah. you know, um, might allow a better sort of neuroaxial technique. Yep. Um, a couple of the case studies I've found, they have performed both either epidural or a spinal with, with no problems. Yep. Um, so, I, yeah. Um, and sometimes people, when they talk about, like, you know, um, doing a slow onset block, sometimes people do a low-dose CSE as well, don't they? We, yep. We have a little bit of... Um, uh, of a, of a smaller spinal dose, like maybe one mil or something like that, and, and then you've got the epidural catheter to then sort of slowly incrementally top it up. Um, but the, but also, what about, um, you know, these neurons are damaged and inflamed and they've got um, myelin's not working, you know, it's been damaged, and so they're sort of like damaged neur- neurons uh, or nerves. Um, and we do know that local anaesthetics can be neurotoxic, uh, Maybe are they maybe you know going to cause um, uh, what's that an exacerbation or worsening of the nerve function? You know, post-op uh, make make things worse. You know, damage the nerves more. What, do we know anything about that, or has anyone talked about that? No, we don't know. No, I was going to quote um, one of the textbooks, Gambling. Um, yep. Gambling, Douglas and McKay, and they basically say that uh, both epidural and CSE techniques have been used successfully for both pain relief in labour and anaesthesia for cesarean sections. Yep. Um, and it's most important is the sensitivity to the regional blockade um, with local anaesthetics, local anaesthetics is usually increased, so similar to what we've been saying. Yeah. But I don't know if there's any... I, I couldn't find anything that says... Yeah. Um, I don't think... Yeah, it's really hard to do studies, isn't it? Exactly. Because the thing is, like, their condition might you know, go downhill after their baby or... Yeah. And was it the epidural and the local anaesthetics, or yeah. was just that's just the natural history? How do you know? Yeah. Without we, randomising people, you don't know, do you? No, and ma- majority of the case studies I've read as well say that um, you know Gillian Barry usually doesn't present in pregnant patients, and therefore a lot of the study and a lot of the yeah. um, research out there is not pregnancy patient related. Yeah, because it's actually one of the um, it, one of the rare condi- conditions that we've talked about in the podcast anyway that is actually more common in males, not females. Yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? So I did. I have seen there was a woman who um, who had a chronic f- um, demyelinating 
uh, condition, which is similar to the you know Guillain-Barré, which is an acute um, syndrome. And she, I know that she has had um, a number of babies, and she used to come to the our high risk clinic to discuss with us, you know, could she have an epidural in mm. labour? And I remember looking up this was a few years back, so it's not fresh in my mind, but I remember looking up all the literature and saying just what you uh, yep. you and I have just been discussing is that we really only just got case reports of people who have had epidurals for pain relief during their labour and some who haven't and we don't know whether it changes your you know condition mm. whether it exacerbates it or not and uh, it's a really a choice of it's, it's up to you and then I think we talk, I talked about other types of analgesia including remifentanil and things yep. like that yeah pretty sure she did have an epidural one time and then other times she didn't so okay. and what about nitrous oxide that's neurotoxic <laughs> is that yeah. <laughs> uh, presumably I think yeah yeah um all right, so I think that pretty much covers it. Did you hear about the guy who had a stroke and had left eye and neglect? No. Yeah, don't worry, he's all right now. <laughs> Dear. <laughs> oh, that's uh, shit, but I thought, I thought a yeah, neurological <laughs> um, joke, sort of a little bit on the thing. Okay. Uh, it's as bad as mine, Roger. <laughs> we didn't completely answer the question, did we? So we're, before we finish, we yep. go back. So we're not going to give Thio sucks tube, are we? What are we going to no. do? Um, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna talk about that as well. So propofol, obviously, yep. as my uh, agent of choice, and yep. uh, rocuronium. But now, yep. do you do a high dose rocuronium like you would do for a rapid sequence induction, or do you do ca- careful, carefully sort of titrated rocuronium, given the fact that they could be more sensitive? I'm not entirely but, sure. Uh, presumably, if, if they've de- denervated, they've got more um, neuromuscular receptors, mm. haven't they? Mm. So maybe they'd be harder to block. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We should have thought about that before we sat there. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be tempted just to give them heaps. Uh, yeah, okay. And then just uh, you know, give a decent big, you know, the, d- big, the big d- dose that you're supposed to in an RSI. Yep. And then and just then use just the gamma as yep, required. Perfect. Okay. I don't know. That's what I would do. Okay. Didn't we did actually have someone with Gambara who, who needed a GA here? She needed a GA. And so this we was did about use a month Rocuronium ago. and Sigamedex, I'm guessing. That's correct. That's exactly yep. what we did. Yep. And lucky we'd seen her for a PPH, wasn't it? Or yeah. was it, it wasn't a cesarean yet. No, so she, we'd seen her preoperatively. Yeah. And she was very. Um, Adamant that she wanted a, uh, a vaginal delivery with no um, sort of uh, labor, anal- yeah, yeah, a neuroaxial labor analgesia. Unfortunately, required um, a general anaesthetic for uh, a large PPH. Lucky we'd seen her and we'd documented all over the anaesthetic chart of always. Do sucks. not use sucks. Always <laughs> sucks. Um, yes. And of course, as you said, this case happened in the middle of the night with, yep. um, so, uh, you know, our yep. lovely uh, registrar on on site. So. Yep. so. Um, Exactly what you said. So propofol and um, sort of 1.2 milligram per kilo of um, rocuronium and then sigamidex at the end. Yep. So um, take on points here. Don't give, don't give sucks. If you're um, if you're someone who looks after uh, women with weird syndromes on the ward, and especially neurological conditions, but any any weird or wonderful um, uh, comorbidity um, who's... L- at risk of needing to come to theatre in the middle of the night, I guess and that's another take-home point. Please let us know yep. uh, from the anaesthetic department anyway uh, as soon as you can so someone can come and see them and figure out what is wrong with them and write a plan so that if they do have to come to theatre in the middle of the night, um, we can do the right thing. Yeah, uh, And I think also despite the fact that they've recovered, yep. um, just remember that they do have guinea barre and we don't know how long it takes for them to actually recover. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think they said like fifteen percent of people can have like chronic long term okay. complications. Well, that's what I read in um, in one of the articles that we're going to um, put a link to as well. Yeah. 
Thanks, Shilpa. That was really good. Awesome. Thank we'll have you. To think up some more interesting scenarios. Absolutely. You've got lots of. I know you have lots of stories from when you've worked in ICU, but also you work at Royal Perth. So you see lots of crazy stuff. Too. Well. I do see. I was going to say the S word then, but uh, <laughs> I might get censored by the by the podcast robot. That stuff stuff sounds better. <laughs> yeah. There's probably some robot that scrolls through the podcast because I this is supposed to be family friendly, and I might get censored if I say any swear words. Mm. <laughs> I think I've said a few with Graham. So I must have got through. All right. All Thanks, right. Jordan. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.